Every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m., WRFL invites you to Office Hours, real-world conversations with UK professors. No appointment necessary. Representing the 16 colleges across campus, Office Hours brings professors from every corner of UK to share their adventures in academia. Go beyond the syllabus to learn more about the people behind the research. We'll be demystifying higher education one interview at a time. Stop by every Wednesday afternoon. Office Hours is available online via wrfl.fm or on the airwaves on 88.1 FM, Radio Free Lexington. Hello and welcome to Office Hours on 88.1 WRFL Radio Free Lexington. I'm your host, David Cole, here with board runner extraordinaire Brian connors Mikey, And our two guests today, the amazing husband and wife team of UK faculty, Kevin Yeager and Julia Johnson. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, I think... Before we get into proper interview stuff, if I could just have each of you introduce yourselves briefly to the audience. Like, give us a primer on you, and we'll start with you, Kevin. Well, as you said, my name is Kevin Yeager. I'm a geologist. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences here at UK. I'm Julia Johnson, associate professor in the English department. I'm director of creative writing. I direct uh, the creative writing program, and I also direct the new MFA program in creative writing, which is a new graduate degree program in the English department, right. Masters of Fine Arts. Cool. That is brand new, right? Brand spanking new. Whew. We'll have, I'll have lots of questions for you. I'm an English major. I am going to try my best to come up with interesting questions for the geology side of things. Sure. But forgive me if they're a little uneducated. That's okay. <laughs> uh, and with that sign to the audience, let's go ahead and move right into geology. Um, now, you're in charge of the Sedimentary Environmental and Radiochemical Research Laboratory, correct? Yes. Or Searle, which is a lot easier to say. Searle. <laughs> so that's fun, too. <laughs> Um, try it. Try it at home, really quick. Okay. Good. All right. <laughs> um, so, uh, I was looking at the Searle website. Mm, that is fun. Uh, the Searle website gives uh, more of an in-depth description of its capabilities and what kind of research goes on there. But could you tell our audience what kind of research goes on there? Sure. So we study. I mean, geology is like any of the hard sciences, where you know, like just like with biology and physics and chemistry. There's many specializations within it. Mm -hmm. So I'm the kind of geologist that studies primarily surficial processes. So what interests me the most is the interaction between humans and the surface of the earth. So one of the things that we use to understand surficial processes is we study sediment. The reason why we study sediment is because it's everywhere, right? Um, everybody in this room has sediment on their body, even if they took a shower this morning. Sediment is everywhere. Um, so we use tools in sedimentology and also in environmental radiochemistry to understand things about where sediment comes from, how long it takes to move from one place to another, how rapidly it can accumulate in a place like a floodplain or a lake or uh, an estuary or the coastal ocean or the deep sea. Um, and that helps us to understand things about how the landscape that we live in has basically evolved over time. Mm -hmm. So the kinds of research that we do are many and varied. Uh, basically, for us, we study the environmental radionuclides, which are just um, radioactive isotopes of elements. Some of those are produced naturally. So when rocks break down and produce sediments, 
there are radioactive elements associated with them. And there are some radioactive elements that we, or isotopes that we characterize that are produced by people. So for example, um, beginning you know at the end of World War II, we started to blow up nuclear weapons on the surface of the earth. And, and all the way up from the end of World War II until the early 1960s, when there was a global moratorium on above ground nuclear weapons testing, humans produced lots and lots of nuclear explosions. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of that, certain radionuclides like things like cesium-137 which people might have heard of from the fukushima daiichi disaster in 2011 mm -hmm. um were basically put up into the atmosphere and circulated around the world and associated themselves with sediments and so we can measure those as well and we can use the radionuclides as a kind of like a clock a chronometer because radionuclides decay at an absolute rate no matter if they're on the bottom of your shoe at the bottom of the ocean, in the heart of the sun, they decay at an absolute rate. So hmm. basically we can measure them and we can understand things about the age of sediment, how rapidly it accumulated somewhere and this sort of thing. Okay. Hopefully that makes sense. It does, actually. Um, where physically is Searle? Just Searle is in uh, the, the Department of Envir Earth and Environmental Sciences is in the Sloan Research Building. Okay. And Searle's on the first floor of that building. Cool, cool. And is that just open to specific students or just your research team, or is it like... No, it's a, it's a common use facility. Um, so any students, obviously in our department, that have a need uh, for the capabilities in Searle are welcome to use them. But more broadly, uh, any students in the university. Um, I sit on the advisory committee of a graduate student in geography, for example, that mm -hmm. comes over and uses our equipment. Um, so it's, it's open to anybody who has the need for that kind of capability. Okay. So just talking about sediment, um, it seems like, especially talking about the, the, the World War II nuclear, mm -hmm. post-World War II nuclear kind of implications of what can be found within sediment. Mm -hmm. I never thought of sediment as something that could tell us more about human beings. Oh, sure. Right? But um, I'm just curious, like, I know you gave a couple of examples, but maybe something you've been working on recently it's and some kind of work with sediment that is related to humans. Yes, you sure. Um, well, in uh, 2010, I'm sure we'll all remember the Deepwater Horizon incident, mm -hmm. um, where the Deepwater oil platform exploded and killed a number of people, and then for several months thereafter, released large amounts of oil uh, into the ocean. And in 2010, I became involved with research with a number of colleagues where. What we were interested in was, you know, you release all this oil into the ocean and what happens to it, right? So one of the things that we know about oil is it doesn't mix very well with water. Mm -hmm. And so some of that oil we imagine would associate itself with uh, particulate matter, solid materials floating in the ocean, and then maybe be deposited on the seafloor or washed up on the coast in coastal marshes um, and create a situation where, you know, in these places, whether you're talking about the seafloor or the coastal marshes, there are indigenous ecosystems there where there's all kinds of critters of different sizes making their living. Right. And so what happens when you dump a bunch of oil on those environments to those ecosystems? Mm -hmm. uh, does it wipe everybody out? Does it wipe just some of the critters out and some of them do really well? What happens? So we've actually been working on um, those kinds of problems since 2010, and the two places that we focused, uh, one place was 
the bottom of the seafloor on the slope of the northern Gulf of Mexico because, of course, the Macondo well was very deep. It was on the bottom of the sea, um, and the, water, the oil was being basically erupted right from the wellhead. And so we were, we've studied a number of stations, about 26 stations, all along the slope of the northern Gulf of Mexico to try to understand how much oil was delivered to these places, what happened to the worms and the various critters that live there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second environment that we focused on were coastal marshes. So um, I'm sure that most of us remember seeing pictures of all the birds that were drenched with oil and whatnot and the marsh grasses that were inundated with oil and people running around trying to clean it up. Right. And so we went to those locations as well. And in both of those settings, we collected sediment cores, which is just a tube of sediment that we put into the substrate and collect it, take it back to the lab. Mm-hmm. Because that gives us basically a historical record as one moves from the surface down into the sediment um, of what has happened there over time. And so we're using those records to try to understand in those marshes as well, well, what happens to the ecosystem when you put various amounts of oil there? Mm-hmm. And so the stations that we selected, we selected them because we hoped that they would give us a range of exposure. So some places were heavily impacted with oil. Other places were only moderately impacted with oil. Other places still were hardly at all or not at all impacted by oil. Mm-hmm. So what have we found with respect to that? And some of our preliminary results I mean, we published one paper last year in Environmental Science and Technology where we were specifically looking at um, marsh sediments and one kind of organism called foraminifera, which are very, very simple organisms, amoeboid protists that build these houses out of calcium carbonate, these shells. And we studied a range of those and we wanted to see, well, what happens to these guys when they're oiled? And what we found was that when we had heavy oiling, there were many species of these foraminifera that are the kind of the base of the food chain that were wiped out. They just couldn't wow. get too much oil. Um, and then in other places, we found where the oil was a little bit less in concentration, lower in concentration, we found some foraminifera that when we examined them under a microscope, their shells, we found that they had mutated. So that instead of making these beautiful spirals of calcium carbonate shells, they had chambers that were inflated or abnormal. And that suggested to us that, well, they survived, right. right, the oiling, but they didn't survive untouched, that something happened to them that affected their ability to basically continue to make their homes. And then other organisms, other foraminifera, actually did very well. Um, and we're not sure if it's because they could utilize the oil as a source of food, mm-hmm. or they did really well because their competition got wiped out. So if they don't have to compete, then they're going to proliferate. They're going to do much better. Really? So we have a lot more work to do, but certainly that's an example of how we can do work uh, where we study sediment and we study certain kinds of uh, organisms relative to a, tox- a toxic compound like you know oil and PAHs that are associated with oil, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, mm-hmm. um, and see what has happened to the environment as a result of that. Wow, that's super in-depth. It's very, very interesting, of course. Uh, We're going to have to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more Office Hours after this. Welcome back to Office Hours on 88.1 WRFL. During the break, Julia began talking about some of the poems that she's brought. She's got a collection that she's put together now, not working on, but uh, could you tell us a bit about that? So the... The book is called Subsidence. It's completed. It's now under review um, for publication. 
The book came about right around the time I think I came across this dictionary of geological terms, um, a really thick dictionary-looking book, um, big black book, and I was just, oh, this looks interesting. I think it was in maybe working in Kevin's office one day, or maybe it was at the house. I'm not really sure, but I came across it, and I just started flipping through it, and I went to the E's, and the first phrase or, or definition I came to was elbow of capture. And I thought, well, that's really intriguing. But this method of using a dictionary and the randomness of, of choosing um, words this way and using them as prompts is something I've done for a long time. It's something I do with my students. So I went to first this, this uh, definition, elbow of capture. And I probably read the, the definition, but mostly I was interested in the title. Mm-hmm. So I'll just read... I'll just read the poem. Sounds great. Elbow of Capture. The apple held high, a legitimate and carved frown on the plate. We want early morning duds, the handkerchief in pocket, a tree-shaped fold. We are waiting our turn in a pile, like cards of a kind. We hand over this single, shifting, and centered house in the head. Little house in the head. The bravest go in. All right. So just to satisfy a bit of curiosity before we talk about the poem, what does elbow of capture mean? And how does it end up relating to the way the poem came out? Kevin, would you like to answer sure. that question? <laughs> well, I can answer the first part. What does it mean? You should answer the other part. <laughs> Elbow of capture. So if you, if you imagine a river uh, from the top down, so maybe you're in a helicopter or an airplane, or you see a picture of the surface of the earth, rivers trace a pattern on the, on the surface of the earth. And so an elbow of capture is a place where, as the river moves along, all of a sudden there's a very abrupt kink uh, or turn in the river's pattern of flow. And we get those because of what's called stream piracy, where the river will all of a sudden abandon its previous channel and it will take up a new path. And so that's what elbow of capture means. What causes the river to abandon its well, it can be caused from, flow? It can be caused from a number of things, but generally you have an area where there's all of a sudden a lower elevation near the river channel and maybe the river channel uh, erodes through its natural levee or raised banks on either side. And when it does that, it can flow into that area of lower elevation and then it can make that its new channel. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that happened, and I guess I'm um, remembering this now, especially with elbow of capture, is that as I, as I began to look for more terms and I realized where this was going, that I, that I might uh, be working on a book, that I think I was particularly drawn to the terms that um, were water related or related on s- in some way to subsidence. So things that I could really relate to as a Louisiana native, because I spent a lot of time on a river um, with my dad, you know, the Pearl River in Louisiana. And so I think that, you know, rivers, lakes, um, all of this seems really familiar to me. And so a lot of the a lot of the poems 
that are specifically drawn from geological terms, I think I was drawn to the term because of some connection, personal connection I had to it. Um, the one that I, I started out reading is a little bit farther into the into the manuscript and is maybe one of the ones that's more abstract, I think. Another thing I did later on um, into the in, into the manuscript, like as I was working on it, I went down to Grand Isle, which is in Louisiana, mm-hmm. um, and it's really uh, remote. Kevin has actually done some research, I think, close to yeah. um, Grand Isle, so he can tell you a little bit about, I think, the geological uh, state of, of that place, which is really remarkable and kind of scary and uh, and has been for a long time. I mean, the entire communities are being you know, really kind of made to move because there's no land left. Kevin, do you want to say something about Grand Isle? And then I could read a couple of the other um, poems from this book, which are about islands in southern Louisiana. Well, not everybody out there may know what what the word subsidence means, which is the title of this this book. And subsidence just means uh, sinking. So when you have an area of the earth that is subsiding, that means that the elevation of the land surface is actually decreasing over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you have an area of land that's near the sea that's subsiding, well, what that means is that the sea level is coming up relative to where you're standing. So Grand Isle, the area that Julia was just talking about, is, is part of the greater Mississippi River Delta, which uh, comprises the southern extent of the state of Louisiana. And so here you have an environment that is rich in biodiversity, and it's also right at sea level. And so over time, what's happening is uh, it's kind of a double whammy. Uh, On the one side, you have natural subsidence happening as a function of large-scale geologic processes. And so what's happening is the delta surface is slowly sinking. Um, And we compound that with the fact that Humans have come in there and tried to develop parts of that area, and one of the things that we like to do is is control rivers. So we levy the rivers or we dam the rivers, and what happens is when you do that, we don't want them to flood because that's hard for us to you know, live there if the surface of the earth is flooding all the time. So that's a big part of the reason why we try to control these rivers. But flooding is the lifeline that provides sediment to the delta. So if you allow it to flood, and it's sinking, well, the sediment can kind of make up for some of that, and it would sink less rapidly. But So what we've done by occupying that land is we've kind of exacerbated the rate of subsidence. And then on the other, uh, the other double part of the double whammy is that because of climate change, uh, global sea levels are coming up. So if you live in this place, you're faced with the reality that not only is the land you're sitting on sinking, but the level of the ocean that's very near to you is rising. Mm. Uh, and so as a result, we've documented in the scientific community very, very large rates of land loss uh, in the Mississippi River Delta as a function of that. But as Julia mentioned, um, for as long as there's been people living there, there are robust folks that you know live, on, live in houses on stilts and mm-hmm. they make their living harvesting the resources, the rich resources that are there. And they're a unique uh, breed of people, but uh, yeah, I mean, just to give you an idea, um, so the 
there's a string of islands and they're barrier islands and one of the islands that I was really interested in is in, is called Last Island and it was um Originally, it was a pleasure resort, and it was southwest of New Orleans, so everyone used to go there and vacation in the uh, 1850s. And in 1856, it was destroyed um, by the by a hurricane um, that's now referred to as the Last Island Hurricane, and over 200 people died. The island was completely left void of any vegetation, and then but people went back. Um, and this was in the 1850s. Um, so these people, you know, they've they've learned they've they've endured hurricanes for a very long time. This isn't anything new, right. um, but they still go back there. So, um, so I became really interested in writing about um, the people, but also um, just in kind of some of what works into these particular poems um, are my own personal. I mean, my personal experience just growing up in. Um, New Orleans and being uh, there during hurricanes. I mean, when I was in elementary school, my dad picked me up from school in a boat um, one day when um, everything was was uh, flooded. So I mean, it's really kind of you know a, a bizarre childhood. Um, and not a lot of people can say that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I mean, usually you know we got picked up in a car, but that day was special. Um, so this this. Do I have time now to read? Yeah. Um, I'll read a poem that in which um, these things come into play. It's called Trinity Island. You are driving your small boat into the crease. The school is underwater now. You ride by the store with the cashier whose face is always in profile. You are trying to remember the teacher's story yesterday of her much younger ex-husband and accountant with dark hair who lives on the mainland with a kind of heart condition. You are trying to remember the heart condition she said he has. Your uncles are situated in the highest house. One is playing cards, the other is sawing through the roof. The two dogs in your lap are licking their paws. So if you're from any any place uh, that has hurricanes, you know this image of, of sawing through the house, sawing through the roof. Um, most people who live um, in, you know, in New Orleans keep something that they can use to saw a hole through the roof in case the, the house floods and you have to go through the up to the attic and through the roof. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what that detail is in the poem. Great. All right. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, but after that, we'll be back with more from Kevin Yeager and Julia Johnson. Stay tuned. You are listening to Office Hours on 88.1 WRFL, and we are back for more good times. Uh, When we left off before the break, we had been talking about these people in the Mississippi, Louisiana area and how this uh, substance Am I saying that correctly? Subsidence. Subsidence, sorry. Um, This subsidence effect is having this dramatic impact on the way that they live, but still they're holding in there and they're not giving up this, this land is maybe a funny term to use, but this home that they have there, despite the fact that the earth seems to not want that to be the case. So... 
you know, I'm curious. You say that uh, you're from Louisiana initially and that a lot of these poems come from stories like this being picked up on a boat, for instance. Uh, I'm curious if there are, like, any other stories or things that you can remember from your time there or maybe going back in the years since you can tell us about that would highlight this this challenge that the people face there. I mean, one of the things that occurred to me, or didn't occur to me, but I thought I should mention is that, I mean, these are people who um, rely on mo- the people I'm talking about who just keep coming back to their homes or, or never leave um, in, in times when they're, you know, forced to evacuate <laughs> um, or told to evacuate. These are people who rely on this place for their living. Mm-hmm. So. You know, the, I'm talking about shrimpers, um, people who rely on the oyster industry, um, fishermen. So I think that, you know, that's kind of one of the reasons. I mean, if you leave, then what do you have? You know, you're, you don't have anything. So I think that it's really hard for some of these people to imagine another life um, because this is how they make their living. You know, I'm just thinking about the the Vietnamese community in New Orleans East. Um, you know, these are people who left Vietnam in very hard times um, and immigrated to this country. And then they're, you know, they find themselves in a place that climate-wise is very much like Vietnam. So they, you know, they're used to that climate. And that's one of the reasons they choose Louisiana. I think it's always been popular, but also because they, many of them are professional um, shrimpers and, uh, and fishermen. And so when Hurricane Katrina and subsequent and previous hurricanes came, you know, they were the ones who rebuilt very quickly mm-hmm. um, because they had the skills and they had the sort of, I think, endurance that was needed to to survive and to, you know, want to prevail mm-hmm. again. Um, so I find that really interesting. I'd like to at some point write about those people, the Vietnamese people in that community outside of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. There's also a generational component, too. I mean, even the the Vietnamese people have been there long enough now that it's multi-generational, but certainly when you look at Americans, there are generations of families that have lived in those areas. So it's like, you know, this is what grandpap did, this is what dad did, this is what I learned how to do. So, you know, we just stick it out and make it work. Right. And that's how that's how it goes. Because as Julia said, you know, if they did pick up and decide to go somewhere else, where would they go that they could use those skills that are the only skills that they've learned to make a living? Uh, you know, the, the options are rather sparse. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a quintessential American story, isn't it? Like, the industry goes away, but you don't go away because this is what you know. And that's very interesting. Um, and the attachment to land, too, I think is a very interesting idea. I mean, these are people who, you know, have worked really hard to own their homes, um, and they, you know, own this land that is, is essentially going away, but... You know, they own it. They still own it. Um, whether or not, you know, it's underwater, it's still there. And so they end up building, you know, their houses just higher and higher on these stilts, mm-hmm. um, which is another fascinating kind of uh, 
topic architecturally that's happening. I mean, in, in New Orleans, you know, you'll drive down a road that, you know, you remember these houses from, you know, long ago, uh, like that same house on that corner. Well, that house looks really different. <laughs> it's about 20 feet in the air now. <laughs> it's not on the slab that it was on. You can kind of almost look Dr. Seuss-ish. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Makes me wonder personally like when the water world future that was predicted uh will come about uh, i don't know if you guys have seen that prophetic film mm-hmm. it's it really is a masterpiece um but when will this land that people own be far enough underwater that we'll need to start building homes underwater yeah. now is this a crazy question or? Well, i mean you know <laughs> it depends on who you talk to um you know we see we're inundated by media uh, in our country that uh, you know a lot of people have opinions about climate change um, but the government doesn't really seem to be interested in doing a whole lot about any of it mm-hmm. uh, but the reality of it is is that you know in places like coastal Louisiana you have that double whammy effect where you have subsidence and you have sea level rise but even in places where you don't have subsidence you still have sea level rise mm-hmm. so you know if you look at our country you know cities like Miami New York Baltimore New Orleans, obviously, um, San Francisco, San Diego. These are all cities that are coastal cities, large urban centers. And so if you continue to have sea level rise, it's going to eventually start to displacing people. Mm-hmm. There's no other alternative. So, yeah, what do you do? I don't know. You build solution. up or you build over. I don't know what to do. <laughs> Hopefully we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also, during the break, shifting gears here just a little bit, folks, we had discussed how Kevin and Julia and their works and kind of even how they might affect each other are a good representation of how, you know, the arts and the sciences, this is how how Kevin put it, uh, the arts and the sciences don't have to be mutually exclusive. There is a lot of crossover there. And uh, you said something about you have students that uh, you've had in the past that come in they say well i'm not a science person sure i don't have a head for it or whatever <laughs> exactly yeah i uh mm-hmm. it kind of first occurred to me a number of years ago julia was giving a, a presentation of some of her early uh poems that became part of subsidence and there was this really interesting dynamic where she went up to the podium to begin the reading and it wasn't just a regular reading where someone just stands there and reads words to an audience but one of her colleagues had helped her and what they had done is they had taken a bunch of still photographs of pages of the geologic terms dictionary. And then behind her on this really big screen, what they did was they projected these pictures um, fading in and out and moving slightly and turning as she was reading it. And I thought it was a really interesting way to do a reading. As I sat in the audience and I listened to her poems, I realized that I was probably the only person in the audience that knew any of the terms that she was talking about and what occurred to me was that as she read the poems the title and then the the work itself it was clear that some of the poems you know the there was a relationship between the content of the poem Mm -hmm. and the meaning of the term but then there were other poems where there was no relationship at all between the content of the poem and the meaning of the of the term but it was more the music of the term or the phrase that she was using and I thought that was a really interesting artistic expression. And so along the point you just made, you know, I've been teaching non-majors courses for a number of years now, as has Julia. And when I teach particularly lower level non-majors courses, 
um, there's always a cohort of students in the class that at some point in the term make it clear to me that they're not a science quote unquote person. Mm -hmm. um, and they took mm -hmm. this class because it checks a box and it's a requirement or whatever it mm -hmm. is. Um, and they're struggling and they're doing the best that they can, but please be aware I'm not a science person. And I have those person. same students in my, I teach a large lecture, uh, it's English 107, it's Introduction to Imaginative Writing, and it's huge, it usually has over 150 students. Um, many of them, most of them are non-English majors. Um, and so, you know, when I ask them to write a poem, it's like, no, I can't, you know, I've never written a poem. I don't know how to be creative. I don't know how to be imaginative. Um, I'm an engineering major. Right. What do you want from me? You know, this <laughs> exactly. Kind of right. But the, the, the point that I was going towards was that, you know, I think a lot of people think this way. A lot of people think, you know, I'm a quantitative person. You know, I like math. I like engineering. I like science. Mm -hmm. I don't really understand the arts whether they're visual arts or spoken word or written art, whatever. And the al alternate is true, where you have people that are consider themselves very artsy, but they <laughs> don't really understand the quantitative aspects of engineering or mathematics or science. And I think that the work that Julia uh, is doing is really interesting because she's taking terms that have a scientific basis uh, and she's making art out of them. And I think that that's something that, you know, whether you're an art person or whether you're a science person, you can appreciate some element of that. Mm -hmm. And so that's a way that you can kind of meld those two things together um, in a way that most people don't think that they can be. Right. It's something I can speak to. Fortunately enough, English education at the University of Kentucky really lets you know when you come in like you were in a degree where there are a whole bunch of different career paths because everybody wants people who can write now not necessarily i'm going to go work for an online publication and analyze chaucer all day hopefully but um <laughs> that there are options and <laughs> something that they have kind of hammered into us so far i think is that you have to look for ways to apply what you're learning. And in creative writing, I imagine that it's, it's, it's something like, well, even if you are in engineering, you can find poetry in what you're doing, maybe in the observation of a process, mm -hmm. even a simple process, like mm -hmm. the turning of gears, looking at clockwork. I mean, clockwork is, I think I would compare that to engineering, mm -hmm. like a form of poetry that is physical. Mm -hmm. And that may be weird, but... No, and clocks are often in poems, so you see a lot also of true. clocks in poems. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, and I think one of the things that I've, one of the great joys for me as a teacher of creative writing is finding that student who is, you know, a biology major or a chemist who is just so brilliant at writing poems. And I love, I love kind of finding that student because the work is usually really interesting because it's coming from this you know other other place kind of seeing the joy in the student who realizes that he or she has this gift for writing that he or she did not know yeah. he or she had and it's so valuable i think to come at that particular art form without having a whole bunch of prior knowledge of like, well, this was a poetry movement, and these are famous poets, <laughs> and this is who I want to emulate, and I right. like Bob Dylan a whole lot. How can I write poetry about that and whatever? Like, being able to come at it with a clear mind as far as that is concerned has to be super valuable. We'll take a short break. 
We'll be back in like 30 seconds, we'll like Brian says. And welcome back to Office Hours. Julia, you yes. are the director of the MFA in Creative Writing at the University of Kentucky. Brand dun, spanking. Dun, dun. <laughs> brand spanking new. Right. Your words, not mine. Um, I'm wondering if. You, can you tell us about this program? Where did it come from? Why should people get into it? Let Lexington know. Okay. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, the history of creative writing um, at UK is, is a long one. It goes back um, many, many years to, I mean, the, the best person to talk to about the history of creative writing is Gurney Norman. Um, he's been here since almost the beginning. Um, but the, you know, the first fiction class was, fiction writing class was offered here in the, in the 50s. Um, so it's not Creative writing has been taught at UK for a long time. We've had this we have this long history of creative writing faculty here, Gurney Norman, Wendell Berry, uh, Nikki Finney, a variety of writers, um, Ed McClanahan, James, James Baker, Baker Hall. Hall. Thank you, Kevin. Mm-hmm. Um, Guy, Davenport. <laughs> Guy Davenport, Jane Gentry Vance. Um, and now, you know, we have uh, Frank X. Walker, who's been here for a number of years. Myself, we're, we both teach poetry. Um, Eric Reese is a nonfiction faculty member. So I think, and I want to talk just for a minute about our new fiction hires, but I think that, you know, the history has been here. Creative writing's been taught here for a long time, and people have always asked, well, why isn't there a graduate program in creative writing at the University of Kentucky? Mm -hmm. And I think it's just that there never really, there was never really a need for one that was a particular, I think, there wasn't a dire need. Um, and then with the proliferation of graduate programs, particularly in creative writing, I think that there was probably um, maybe less of an interest. And then all of a sudden, it sort of became really exciting and something that we could all look forward to. Um, and so when I arrived, uh, we you know, immediately started proposing the program. I had been working um, with Rick Barthelme at the Center for Writers at the University of Southern Mississippi for a number of years. And I learned a lot about what it takes to have a really great creative writing program. And so I started pushing for those things, kind of using the Center for Writers as a model. Um, I knew that we needed a really strong visiting writers series. I knew that we needed more faculty in fiction and that you know we really just needed um, to, to gain support. And we've had tremendous support, both from the dean of our college and from the chair of the English department. We were able to actually hire three fiction faculty, um, Manuel Gonzalez, Hannah Petard, and Andrew Ewell. They're wonderful, brand new assistant professors. And we have our first cohort in place this year of graduate students, um, poetry, fiction, and nonfiction. We have 15 tremendously talented students. Um, Some are from Kentucky, some are from as far away as Texas. And we, well, I should say one is from as far away as Texas. (laughs) And it's been a really exciting year. And we um, have, you know, a lineup of visiting writers this year. And it's just there's a lot of energy. We have students, you know, packed into our undergraduate creative writing classes. There's a lot of buzz about it. So it's really exciting to be a part of it. All right. Quick question. Do you see creative writing as a program, just to use a simple term, offered at the University of Kentucky? 
expanding significantly in the coming years. Like, I, the Masters is new. That's a big deal. But do you see more coming and being added to that? Maybe just as simple as courses, maybe undergraduate stuff anywhere. Yes, we're, we're adding more and more undergraduate courses. We have just proposed a minor in creative writing, which is, which is huge because that means that someone who is a geology major could minor in creative writing. It's about time. Is that, what you, is that what you were going to do? Do you want it to minor in creative writing, Brian? Yeah, I love creative writing. What was your major? Broadcast journalism. So you would have minored in creative writing had it been... It's a creative writing courses, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, we have a focus in creative writing, and so our our students who are non-majors, they end up just taking classes, but they don't actually receive anything, you know, on their transcript for that. So the minor, I think, is going to be huge, a huge addition. It's already, it's going to be in place next year. As far as the MFA program, it probably won't get much larger than that in terms of students, because I think that the smaller it is, the more, you know, it can be selective. It can obviously be more special. Um, It depends on uh, how how many faculty we have, I think, in any given year. But, you know, the MFA program is part of the English department's graduate program as a whole, and we offer an MA in English and a PhD in English. So we now have a really huge graduate program in the English department. I don't know if that answers your question. It does, actually. Thank you for that. Okay. (laughs) Um, Well, this time, for sure, we're almost out of time. Now I'm looking at the clock, and I know. So So the deadline is in January for the MFA program, if you would like to apply. And it sounds like all of you out there should. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Office Hours. Tune in next week, same time. No, next week we will have a fill because of Thanksgiving. But then we'll return with more Office Hours. Yeah, don't don't make us, don't bill us what we're not. Yeah, right. (laughs) That is my mistake. Hours is produced in cooperation with WRFL and the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Kentucky. This broadcast theme song is Sandu, performed by Hugo Drupi Contini and provided by the Free Music Archive. <laughs>